All right, we'll get started with this week's lecture. This week, we're going to cover the doctrine of God. And Allison covers a lot in this section of the book. And we simply don't have time to cover everything that he touches on. So I'm not even going to cover providence or creation. I'm, I'm just going to cover the knowability and the incomprehensibility of God and then God's attributes. And next week, we'll do the doctrine of humanity, but I will finish up this week's lecture with a discussion about the Trinity. So that's just to give you a heads up of, about what to expect uh, with the doctrine of God. So the big idea is that God and God alone is man's highest good. That's the first sentence of Hermann Boving's Wonderful Works of God. That's the best first sentence of a systematic theology. God and God alone is man's highest good. And the application is, how is your life drawn to worship the triune God? Any application of a doctrine of God is concerned with worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Revelation 4.8. In Revelation 5.12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. So here's an outline for you. As I said, we'll cover the knowability and the incomprehensibility of God. And then we'll discuss God's attributes and we'll break those into two categories, the incommunicable attributes and the communicable attributes of God. And we'll dis define all of these terms. So let's begin with the knowability and the incomprehensibility of God. Here's a summary. We have adequate and accurate knowledge of God, but we do not have exhaustive knowledge of God. We have adequate and accurate knowledge of God, but we do not have exhaustive knowledge of God. I was smiling this morning in Terry's sermon with the, the illustration of the ocean and the Dixie cup. That's what we're getting at with the idea of the incomprehensibility of God, the ocean and the Dixie cup. A few key texts are Advent verse, history and mystery, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. Job 11, 7 through 8. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than shale, what can you know? Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So an important principle in our theology, especially our doctrine of God, and especially when we think about the knowability and the incomprehensibility of God, 
an important principle is the creator-creature distinction. And it's pretty straightforward. The creator-creature distinction. God is the creator, mankind the creature. God is infinite, mankind is finite. God is holy, mankind has a fallen human nature. Great theological error is made when the creator-creature distinction is blurred or erased. We never want to confuse those. Two examples of major errors that erase the creator-creature distinction. Pantheism and materialism. First, pantheism. Pantheism, think all, pan, everything. Pantheism is the belief that everything is God and God is everything. Reality is one unified thing. And really, pantheism is a form of what's known as monism. I think mono, uh, one. Monism is the belief that reality is simple one kind of thing rather than complex. The Unity Church next door would be an example of a type of pantheism. So you can read (laughs) about what they believe on their website. Uh, They believe prayer is a pathway to conscious connection with the principle that is God. So as I read that, I take that to mean God is not a personal God. God is an abstract principle. And then the goal is to communicate with the quote-unquote divine mind and share in the oneness of everything. So all of reality is this spiritual divine mind. That could be taken as a form of pantheism. Second, materialism. Materialism is the worldview that reality is ultimately material. Think atoms or matter. And materialists argue that consciousness, human emotion, faith, morality, these things can be explained by pure, mere mechanical processes in the brain. So the mind is nothing but synapses, neurons firing in the brain. Thought is nothing more than computation. The great British conservative philosopher Roger Scruton called this nothing buttery in his criticism of it. Human emotion is nothing but synapses firing in the brain. The human person is nothing but an animal. Beautiful paintings are nothing but pigment smeared across the canvas. Think of the Mona Lisa. That's nothing but pigment smeared across canvas. So pantheism erases the creator-creature distinction by either flattening God into the creation or elevating the creation by deifying it. On the other hand, materialism erases the creator-creature distinction by erasing the creator out of the picture completely. There's just creation Except, of course, it's not creation, it's just raw material stuff. And the Christian worldview is totally opposed to both of those viewpoints. 
we have to maintain the creator-creature distinction. And that's especially important, as I said, with our knowability and the incomprehensibility of God. So we can have adequate and accurate knowledge of God, but not exhaustive knowledge because human beings are limited, finite creatures. And that's a good thing. Uh, God is infinite, his knowledge uncontainable. Think the ocean and the Dixie cup. Yet, God has graciously revealed himself to us. And we discussed last week the concept of divine revelation. And we, we spoke of two major categories as we think about that, general and special. And so we emphasize that both general and special revelation are supernatural. Both are acts of grace. Both are examples of God's gracious initiative in making himself known. God has made himself known with respect to salvation. We have everything we need to know. Uh, Yet, even so, Paul says, now we see through a glass darkly. So 1 Corinthians 13, 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Even though God has made himself known to us through his word, even though God has made himself known to us through God the Son incarnate, even though we have adequate and accurate knowledge of God, especially in matters concerning salvation, we are still left with mystery. God is inexhaustible. So in all of theology, especially as it concerns our doctrine of God, we have to be okay with mystery. Bavink says mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. A few more comments on the incomprehensibility of God. So when we say God is incomprehensible, we are uh, rejecting two things. We are not atheists and we are not agnostics. So atheism, the belief that no God exists, atheism, without theism, but atheism is parasitic on the concept of God. It can only exist by presupposing the idea of God, atheism. And historically, atheism has never been the default position of human beings. Last week, we discussed the innate sense of God. God has planted eternity in our hearts. That's part of general revelation. That's why human beings worship and we don't always get the object of our worship correctly, and we worship idols as opposed to the true living God. But nonetheless, atheism has never been the default position of human beings. Agnosticism says that we can't know if God exists. It says human knowledge is incapable or insufficient to justify a rational belief in God's existence. But as I said, the incomprehensibility of God differs from agnosticism. Both would agree that human knowledge is limited in some capacity. 
the difference is that the agnostic says, because of that limitation, we therefore can't know or be certain to make rational judgments on, say, belief in the existence of God. The Christian who affirms that God is incomprehensible is, I think, simply a less cynical person. (laughs) They are okay with mystery. They would say, yes, human knowledge is limited. Nevertheless, God has made himself known to us in such a way that accounts for our fallen rational faculties. And we can have accurate and adequate knowledge of God, but it'll never be exhaustive. We can never fully comprehend God. Augustine says, to attain some slight knowledge of God is a great blessing. To comprehend him, however, is totally impossible. So in your notes, I have a section on some arguments for God's existence, and I just listed four common uh, types of arguments for God's existence. But for the sake of time, I won't um, be able to go through them, but I want to just draw your attention to the notes so that you can read through those and you have them for your reference. I will just mention one, and that is a moral argument for God's existence. So a moral argument for God's existence seeks to argue that God exists on the basis of humanity's sense of right and wrong. A classic example of a moral argument for God's existence would be found in the work of, say, C.S. Lewis. Most notably, I think it's in the first few chapters of Mere Christianity. And he says things like, you know, you you can't uh, call a stick crooked unless you have a sense of what is straight, what is right. A moral argument would go like this. If God does not exist, objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties exist. We all know murder is wrong, for example. (laughs) So objective moral values and duties exist. Therefore, God exists or God must exist. Don't misunderstand this argument. The argument is not saying that somebody has to believe in God in order to be a good person or to live a moral life and do, quote-unquote, good things. What, what this question is actually, uh, or what this argument is actually suggesting is, can we formulate a system of ethics It's morality, right and wrong, can we formulate a system of ethics without reference to God? And I think the answer to that is no. Perhaps we might say we can formulate a system of ethics apart from God, but it would be one that ultimately is incoherent and unsustainable for public life. especially in the long term. We forget that much of the West exists because it was built on a foundation of Judeo-Christian ethics. And we live in a society now that has essentially pulled the rug out from underneath of us. 
So we have things like the Universal Human Rights Declaration, and we speak about human rights, but we do so in a context severed from the theological foundation that established the idea of so-called human rights. Uh, we live in a society that talks about human rights severed from the giver of those rights. So I like to think of it like a giant Jenga set and society is pulling planks out from our system of ethics in a very dangerous and cavalier way, which is causing great instability and confusion. They're pulling out the foundational Christian moral capital of past ages. So, yes, it's conceivable. Certainly somebody could conceive of a system of ethics apart from God, but I don't think it's sustainable or coherent in any meaningful way. And I think that the cultural confusion that we see today is evidence of that. So again, uh, the rest of the arguments, you can refer to those in your notes. But for the sake of time, we'll move on. So let's move on to the incommunicable attributes of God. And let me just plug a couple books here. I would recommend this book by Matthew Barrett called None Greater. Matthew Barrett is a professor at Midwestern and this book is a fantastic book on the attributes of God. It's very accessible, but you can tell there's a robust sense of uh, research um, undergirding it. So it's it's very rich book, very accessible book. And then the other book, this is not necessarily a recommendation uh, just because it was one of the hardest books I've ever read, but it's called... Jesus and the God of Classical Theism by Stephen Duby. And I want to mention both of these books just to give you a sense of uh, the debate in academic spheres on classical attributes of God. So both Barrett and Duby would be retrieving what might be called classical theism. And Basically, in modern theology, there are certain classical attributes of God, which we'll discuss, that people are abandoning or saying um, that they're misguided and we, we need to do away with them because of things like the incarnation. So when we think about Jesus taking on human flesh, that presents challenges for some of these classical attributes of God. And what both of them are doing, these are two evangelical scholars, they're saying, no, 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 um, these attributes are important. We need to retain them. And yes, the incarnation presents difficulties, but these can be reconciled. These can be thought through, uh, but we, we just have to do the difficult work of thinking through these challenges. So that's just a sense of the debate right now. Um, but again, I would definitely recommend Matthew Barrett's None Greater if you want to read further on this. So why do we speak of language of communicable and incommunicable attributes? Well, the answer would be the creator-creature distinction. When we talk about 
God's attributes, his nature, there are some attributes that are true only of God. And then there are some attributes of God that humans mirror in some capacity. The incommunicable attributes are attributes of God that belong only to God as God. They belong exclusively to him. He doesn't share or communicate them with human beings. Those are the incommunicable attributes. And the first incommunicable attribute we'll discuss is aseity, or God's independence. God's aseity. God is ase. That is a Latin phrase meaning of himself. God exists as the self-sustaining God. He's the only being in the universe that exists independently. God is independent. He does not, or he is not caused by something else. God does not become God. God is not part of a greater reality external to himself. God is complete in himself. He doesn't get his greatness, his existence, his goodness from something external. Here's a quote from Stephen Duby on divine aseity. It is an attribute that signifies that God is not dependent on anything or anyone else to be the God that he is, but instead has life in and of himself. This is a life eternally fulfilled in the fellowship of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Bible assumes God's existence. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. So it presupposes that God already exists. He doesn't become God. God creates the world. Not because of any deficiency in himself, but it's out of his generous will to communicate life and to provide for humanity. God's independence, his fullness, his plentitude is seen in his revelation of himself to Moses. Think of the burning bush, Exodus 3.14. God reveals his name as I am who I am. He is the self-existing God. That means Moses Uh, The people of Israel do not determine who God is or what God will do. God is completely free and sovereign freedom. Exodus 33, 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. The book of John says that God has life in himself. And 526 says, says, as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So that life is Trinitarian. Acts 17, Paul is at the Areopagus engaging in the public square, and he says, the God who made the world and everything in it does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So God doesn't need 
our worship. He doesn't need to be served by humans as though he needed anything, but he has life in and of himself. He is say. So Stephen Duby says, upholding God's aseity is not, as some have suspected, a way of implying God is aloof or uninterested in the history of the world. But rather, it implies that God is acting from a rich um, love and freedom in his works. And he never uses the creature as an instrument of his own self-realization. So what, what Doobie means is God never uh, uses creation in an instrumental way to come into his own, to actualize himself. So in concrete terms, why does the doctrine of aseity matter? I think that and I'm following Doobie here, I think it, fo- it bestows dignity on humanity. God's creatures. If God is ase, if he is free, if he's independent, self-existent, then he doesn't create us or use us in an instrumental way to actualize himself. But rather, in his sovereign freedom, in his independence, he chooses to create us even when he didn't need to. He does this out of his love. And that, in turn, gives us an immense amount of dignity. The next attribute is immutability. Immutability, God does not change. Divine immutability signifies that God cannot be changed, improved, or diminished. He will never cease being God. He eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, God is constant. And in terms of God's perfections, God will eternally remain all-knowing, loving, holy, good. God's decree, God's eternal good plan is constant and it will reach its God-directed fulfillment. God is faithful to his promises. He will never renege or go back on his word. Psalm 102 contrasts humans with Uh, the God who does not change. So the writer in verses three and four and 11 says, for my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and is withered. My days are like an evening shadow and I wither away like grass. This is contrasted with God in verse 12. But you O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. God sits on his throne forever. Verse 25 through 27 says, The world perishes, but God remains the same. Of old you laid down the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. 
like a dirty set of clothes and they will pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Malachi 3.6 straightforwardly says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. So this is very interesting. The context is really key to our understanding of humility. And this is where it's really practical for us. God's immutability The fact that God is constant is the basis for our hope of redemption. Because God does not change, we are able to repent and return to him in verse 7. What a great comfort to us when we sin. We can repent because we know God does not change. His steadfast love endures forever. He's not fickle. He's, he doesn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed, if you will. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Faithfulness is the God who he is. So, Again, that's a great encouragement to those of us who are weak and sorrowful in our heart over our sin. We are, we are fickle, but God is constant. He is faithful. He cannot deny his faithfulness. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from the Father of lights. He is the ultimate source of all that is good and perfect. comes from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So he is the source of all good. He is constant. He is unchanging. And that goodness is never tarnished or dimmed or diminished over time. Likewise, God's purpose for the world is constant. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. God will accomplish his purposes. Nothing can thwart God's plan or purpose from reaching its God-directed fulfillment. Some of the challenges for divine immutability are found over various texts which speak about God's regrets or God's repenting. There are numerous texts, but I'll just mention three. Genesis 6, 5 through 6, the flood narrative with Noah. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Exodus 32, 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. 
Does the Lord change his mind here? Sounds like a change. 1 Samuel 15, 11. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned his back from me, or from following me, and has not performed my commandments. Verse 35, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. So there are many more examples. Uh, Stephen Duby is helpful here, and he argues that if God knows in advance of what is to come, then that should change the way that we understand God's repentance or his regret. So we shouldn't take God's repentance or regret as if there was like an advancement in knowledge that was previously unknown to God, and then that subsequently results in a change in his plan. So some theologians, I think rightly, will speak of a change in God's works or God's actions, but not in his counsel or his eternal plan. So in other words, God's eternal plan encompasses these developments in history. Thus, God's repentance, God's regret, instead of being obstacles for of instead of being obstacles to God in reaching his uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm stumbling over my words. Instead of being obstacles to God's unfolding plan, they are actually the turning points of God's unfolding eternal plan. So you can think of it as, you know, why do we pray? Well, prayer is the means through which God's plan unfolds. But that doesn't necessarily mean a change in his counsel. The next attribute is impassibility. Impassibility is probably the most easily misunderstood A simple definition of divine impassibility is that God is without passions. He is impassible. But this can be easily misunderstood. As if we're saying God does not have emotions. Or that God is like some immovable block of wood. Rather, what we mean by divine impassibility is that God is unaffected by external realities. He is not going to be acted upon by something external, which would then produce a change or stimulate him to act in a certain way in which he otherwise wouldn't act. Drop my mic here. So Stephen Duby puts it this way, God is not susceptible to being harmed or deprived of any good that is constitutive of his well-being. In other words, what we mean by divine impassibility is that God cannot suffer. Positively, impassibility would say that God is maximally alive 
God is fully alive. He doesn't need to be roused from his sleep. He doesn't need to be moved by something external to himself in order to respond. So impassibility doesn't mean that God is without emotions. Rather, it means that God is not subject to emotional distress like his creatures. God is never in a state of emotional flux. God remains eternally constant in his sense of well-being, in his goodness, in his sufficiency. I mean, think of that. We don't want a God who could be unstable or anxious as he looks at all that's happening in the world. So God, you know, impassibility means that God could never potentially lose it. He could never potentially fly off the handle, lose his cool because of what people do. But God is going to remain steadfast and true to his character. We don't have to fear that God is going to act out of control. A passage in Acts helps clarify the context in which impassibility develops. So Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are at Lystra and the people want to worship them. And after the people see Paul and Barnabas work miracles, it says the crowd saw what Paul had done and they lifted up their voices saying, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But here's how Paul and Barnabas respond in verses 14 and 15. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And that can also be rendered of like passions with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and, and the sea and all that's in them. So when Paul and Barnabas say that we are of like passions with you, they are rejecting the worship of human beings who are of like passions. And instead they urge them to worship the true living God, which implies that he is not of like passions with men. To worship a being of like passions is an empty thing. And in that Greek uh, polytheistic culture, Zeus and Hermes, all of these ancient Greek gods were acted more like humans. They would be overcome with human passions, with anger, with lust, and they would act in devious, scheming ways. And so the point is, God is impassable. He is not like Zeus. We can trust God with his emotional state. Now, of course, the, the big question with impassibility is the suffering of Jesus. Can God suffer? Now, I said impassibility holds that God cannot suffer. So what do we do about Jesus? He is the man of sorrows. That's a difficult question. 
Frau, in the incarnation, we can rightfully say the son, Jesus, suffers, but this is understood to be in his human nature, not in his divine nature. So we're not separating the unity of Christ. He is one person with two natures, one fully God, one fully human. So we're not separating him, but we understand his suffering to take place, uh, however mysteriously that is, in his genuine human nature, in his genuine human suffering. And on that basis, he can sympathize with our weakness and he can be our high priest. But Jesus does not suffer in his divine nature because if Jesus could suffer in his divine nature, then potentially he could be powerless to actually save and deliver us. So while it's appealing, perhaps, to say that God can suffer, we actually don't want a God who can suffer because if he can suffer, then he can't truly help us and deliver us from our sin. Now, Doobie notes that other critics of impassibility say that isn't it a good thing for God to be moved by emotion? And Doobie says, well, if God is impassable, that means he doesn't need to be moved in order to be loving. God is already actively loving. He doesn't need to be roused from his idleness to be loving. So what's the importance of impassibility? Well, the importance is that God is never harmed or diminished. As Matthew Barrett says, he is maximally alive. He's fully alive. He never comes to a place where he can't cope with things. God never loses control over his emotions when he sees our sin. God is never tempted to write us off or renege on his word. The next incommunicable attribute is God's eternality, God's eternal nature. God is eternal. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. That means he is all-encompassing. He is without beginning or end. He is without temporal succession that belongs to his creatures. God has a fullness of life in himself that doesn't acquire or lose that fullness over time. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. 1 Timothy 6 says that God is the immortal one who dwells in unapproachable light. God does not experience time like his creatures do. Psalm 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are as but yesterday. Second Peter 3 says, With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. So we can say God is not bound by time. God created space-time. Yet, God does act in time. So he's not bound by it, but he does act in time. 
he acts in and with time. Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So Stephen Duby says that God's eternality really is a fullness of life that doesn't need to be enhanced or diminished over time. So basically, divine eternity is another angle on divine aseity. And Duby says divine eternity is not a strategy for removing God from history, but a reiteration of God's plentitude in the midst of history. So God is not uh, completely transcendent, so to be uninterested in the world. God is transcendent. He is eternal, yet he acts in and with time. So this view would emphasize that creator-creature distinction. It underscores God's transcendence. And the next incommunicable attribute is simplicity. This one was always my favorite. It was the most confusing. What do you mean God is simple? <laughs> I mean, really, what does that mean? Sounds strange. Well, divine simplicity signifies that God is whole. He is one. God is not composed of parts. He is not a composite being. God is identical with his essence, <clears throat> with his existence, and with his attributes. So we can properly say not just God has wisdom or God has goodness, but rather God is wise. God is goodness. God is holy. God is just. God is love. God is the ultimate instances of those attributes. So basically, divine simplicity, <clears throat> uh, this means God is not a power ranger. God is not a transformer who combines with others in, together to form a, true, a super transformer or a super power ranger. So God's attributes are not floating around in space like uh, blobs and then they're brought together like a big amalgam uh, to come together and form God. That's not what happens. <laughs> God's attributes are not qualities that are added to his being. Uh, because of course, if, if, it, if it was like that, then who is the one doing the uniting? That would have to be God. So that would say there's something greater than God that brings them together and unites them. So God's simplicity rejects that and says, no, God is one. God is simple. He is not com a composite being. He is a unity. Now, God is triune, and we'll discuss that more later, but he is not a composite. Practically speaking, Divine simplicity helps us not elevate one particular attribute of God above the others. So no attribute of God can be put forward to the neglect of others. 
We can't prioritize God's grace apart from God's truth. God's attributes are never set in opposition to each other. We can't say that God's mercy is opposed to his justice or God's love is opposed to his wrath. All, God is all of God's attributes all of the time. Stephen Duby on divine simplicity, he says, God is not composed of parts because A, he does not draw upon something other than himself in order to be the God that he is, and B, there is no one above or behind him that might compose him or put him together. So there is nothing outside of God that God draws upon to be God. If there was, then that would be God. And then the same passages that would affirm this doctrine are the same ones that would affirm divine aseity. So just like God's eternality, God's uh, simplicity are both inflections or different angles on divine aseity. So those are the incommunicable attributes. Now we can turn to the communicable attributes. Sometimes these are called the moral attributes of God. The incommunicable are attributes that belong exclusively to God. The communicable attributes are those that human beings mirror in some capacity. And the first of these is knowledge. The divine attribute of knowledge, of God being all-knowing or omniscient. God knows all things. He knows them fully. He knows the past, the present, and the future. He knows the things that happen in reality, and he knows the possibilities of what could happen but never does. We love those kinds of movies, alternate universes. <laughs> What would have happened if Hitler and the Nazis won World War II? Well, God knows the events that could have possibly existed, but don't. God knows all of his creatures. Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God knows even our minor and insignificant details. He knows what we need before we ask him. Even the hairs on our head are numbered. That means there's nothing in our lives that's insignificant to God. God knows the deep things. He knows the concealed things. He knows the depths of the human heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. 1 John three twenty says it plainly. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. The next attribute is wisdom. This is closely related to knowledge. But as we've emphasized here recently, wisdom 
uh, is not equated with knowledge. It's more than just intellect. It's more than information. Wisdom is practical. Wisdom is about skilled living, the art of living well. Romans 16.7 says that God is the only wise God who created the world in wisdom, with skillfulness. God's wisdom looks like foolishness to the world, the foolishness of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1. God's wisdom is many-sided or multifaceted. Think of a diamond turning over in the light. Ephesians 3.10 says, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And God's wisdom is manifest in the creation through God's ordering, God's guidance, and God's governance over all things. The next attribute is that of truthfulness or trustworthiness. Scripture declares that God is the only true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king, Jeremiah 10. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and under the heavens. So God is the true God. These idols are just vanities. <clears throat> they are vain, empty things. Now, because God is true, he is trustworthy. We can also speak of God's faithfulness as it relates to God's truthfulness. Over and over in scripture, we see this pair of steadfast love and truth. Could also be translated faithfulness, steadfast love and truth. So you can be sure of him. God is a God of truth and not deceit. He cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie. And as we discussed the doctrine of the word last week, because God is true, all that he reveals is true. So scripture, as the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God, it flows from God's being. Scripture is thus true and inerrant, his word is the truth because it flows from his being and it bears his authority. It is God-breathed. Christ is the truth. All of us are familiar, I'm sure, with John 14, 6. Jesus' claim that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come and guide us into all the truth. And how we need the Spirit. Because God is true, he helps us see reality clearly. Apart from the Spirit, apart from the Spirit's illumination, the one who illumines God's word to us, we cannot know God who is true. We cannot know the truth. We cannot know reality as it is. Apart from God's Spirit who reveals this to us. The next attribute is God's goodness. 
As I quoted Bavink, God and God alone is man's highest good. God is the supreme goodness. He is the standard, the ultimate standard of what is good. Scripture declares no one is good but God alone. In an absolute sense. So Bavink, on God's goodness, he says, But that which is good in itself is also good for others. And God, as the perfect and blessed one, is the supreme good for his creatures, the supreme good all things strive for, the fount of all goods, the good of every good, the one necessary and all-sufficient good, the end of all goods. God's goodness is absolute perfection. God is all-sufficient and has good in himself. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And all that God does is good. Psalm 119, 68, you are good and do good. And as I've read our passage in James, James 1, 17, affirms that God is the source of all goodness. Every good gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. God's goodness is his absolute perfection. And therefore, we can think about these other attributes, God's mercy, God's patience, God's grace, God's love, really as being expressions of his goodness applied to different circumstances. So I'm going to give you a series of definitions from these attributes, all coming from Herman Bavink. So God's mercy. God's mercy is the goodness of God shown to those in misery. We have this weird sense that God, as he appears in the Old Testament, is a God of anger and wrath But God reveals his nature in one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. Exodus 34, 6 through 7. This verse is alluded to and cited repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Very important verse. God reveals himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. I think it's Richard Bauckham who says, in his little book um, on who is God, talks about this verse and he says, you know, and we have the benefit of hindsight and we know that God is merciful and gracious. Moses, before God revealed this to him, uh, didn't know that. (laughs) So notice what God leads with there. Merciful. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. God is a God who is merciful, whose mercy is without end, shown to thousands from generation to generation. 
And God's mercy is ultimately revealed in Christ, who is our merciful high priest and who displays the riches of God's mercy. Ephesians 2.4 says that God is rich in mercy. The next is God's patience. God's patience is the goodness of God, which spares those who are deserving of punishment. God frequently shows his forbearance over sin in the Old Testament. In 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul says that he received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Romans 2.4, for God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance. The next attribute, God's grace. God's grace, the goodness of God shown to those who only deserve evil. God's grace is the goodness of God shown to those who only deserve evil. Grace denotes the favor that one person receives or bestows on another. So we can think of it as a mutual giving. Grace on, is favor on the part of the giver, and grace is gratitude and devotion on the part of the recipient. Bavink on grace. He writes, ascribe to God, grace is the voluntary, unrestrained, and unmerited favor that he shows to sinners, and that instead of the verdict of death, brings them righteousness and life. The next attribute is God's love. God's love is the goodness of God expressed in relation to persons, in relationship. We can speak of benevolence, Bene means good. Volence refers to the will. Volition. So benevolence means willing the good of others. Here's a quote from Jack Cottrell on God's love. His self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures and his unselfish concern for their well-being that leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and welfare. Love exists eternally in the Godhead, between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity exists as a community of love, and God creates the world in love, and he wants his people to be united to others and with himself in love. We find this in John 17 in what's known as the high priestly prayer. Jesus says, I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
I have loved you since before the foundation of the world. The love that the Father has for the Son may be in us and Christ in us. That is God's love. The next attribute is holiness. John Frame defines holiness as follows. God's capacity and right to arouse our reverent awe and wonder. God's capacity and right to arouse our reverent awe and wonder. Holiness refers to God's absolute moral perfection and his purity. God is exalted above all creation as holy. He is set apart. So holiness does entail God's separateness from his creation. But uh, we don't need to only emphasize God's separateness from his creation. So that's important. Uh, But it's also important to note that holiness also is a relational term. God's holiness is about God stooping, God condescending to his creatures in grace in order to sanctify them, to make them holy, to purify them, and to bring them into relationship with himself. So holiness really is this relational term. So yes, God is absolutely holy. We are marked by sin. But because of God's holiness, we should understand that God takes the initiative to move toward his creatures to make us holy through the cleansing of Christ's blood, redeeming us through his son. In scripture, the term holiness is also used to denote people or things that have been set apart for general use or things that have been placed in special relation to God and for his service. So scripture speaks of holy ground, holy Sabbath, a holy people, a holy place. So those instances are not merely about the moral quality of something, But the term actually indicates that those people or those objects have been consecrated to the Lord. They have been placed in special relation to be used for his service. Importantly, God's creatures cannot sanctify themselves. Sanctification is a collaborative process between God's grace and our effort. But sanctification proceeds from God's initiative. God is holy, and he wants a holy people for himself. So in the Old Testament, he sets apart Israel to be a a people, a nation, to be of service to him. And in the New Testament, this reaches its fulfillment in Christ, where God is, gives himself to the church where he cleanses and redeems a people from their sin in order to be of service to him. The next attribute is God's justice. 
or God's righteousness. God's justice and righteousness flows from his goodness. Because God is the perfect standard of right and wrong, his actions are righteous. They are upright. And in scripture, God's justice is both restorative, it's about reconciliation, restoring rights that have been wronged, and it's retributive or punitive. We can't emphasize one over the other. Scripture does reveal both aspects of God's justice, restorative and retributive. God is the judge of all the earth. Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just or do what is right? Christ will return as the judge. He will judge the living and the dead. And in Christ, God gives or imputes his righteousness to us through faith. The next attribute is that of jealousy. In scripture, jealousy as it relates to God is not a negative trait. Jealousy is associated with God's love. Exodus 34:14 says God's name is jealous. He is a jealous God. God's jealousy should not be con- confused with the sin of envy. Jealousy may be defined as passionate zeal to guard the exclusiveness of a marriage relationship. And that's the analogy we find throughout the Old Testament of God's relation to his people. He defines it in terms of a marriage relationship and he, he describes uh, the worship of idols, the worship of false gods as adulterous. God's love for his people is a covenant love. Song of Solomon 8.6, For love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave, its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. God's jealousy is a fiery jealousy. God demands and deserves our exclusive worship, our allegiance, our fidelity. As I said, that's why God uses the analogy of the covenant of marriage to describe his relationship with his people. God's jealousy is not inconsistent with his love or his goodness. Rather, it's, an, it's another expression of that love and goodness. So there's nothing wrong with God's jealousy. Our jealousy can go askew and turn into the sin of envy because of our fallen human nature. But God is absolute perfection. He is completely good and righteous and holy. And so his jealousy, uh, there's nothing wrong with his jealousy. 
God has an intense care for his love relationship. He becomes jealous for his people. He wants to protect them from anything that will harm his relationship. God's jealousy is never in conflict with his goodness. God's wrath is the next attribute. Similarly, God's wrath is not inconsistent with his love or goodness. God's wrath is God's response to sin. Wrath is God's execution of punishment on sin. Wrath is not an impersonal force. Wrath originates from God. Its source is God. And liberal theologians want their Jesus of love, and I do too. I just wish the liberals had a more robust vision of the love of Jesus. We have to deal with this. Here's a vision of the loving Jesus of the New Testament, Revelation 6. 15 through 16. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. The wrath of the lamb. There's no question as to whose wrath that is. Hebrews 10, 31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God can be a terrifying reality. You know, I'm reminded of that, I think it's the beavers in Narnia. When it's, is it Lucy talking to them? And they're talking about Aslan. Is he safe? Of course he's not safe, he's a lion, but he is good. Okay, so God can be terrifying. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but he is a good God. And here's the thing, the gospel casts out this fear. Perfect love casts out fear. And Jesus takes away this terror and he fills us instead with confidence We have our hearts sprinkled clean of a guilty conscience. We can confidently approach the throne of grace. So how should we understand God's wrath? We should understand it as an expression of his righteous love. If God does not punish sin, he is no longer righteous or just. God's righteous love must be wrathful against sin. We want God to actually do something against sin. John Frame says God's love is a tough love. And he says God's wrath actually enriches God's love. And we should remember that the ultimate goal or the ultimate purpose of God's wrath is the blessing of a sin-free world. That's a good thing. 
the last attribute that we'll discuss is God's power. God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. Examples of God's power include God's creation of the world out of nothing. Events such as the Exodus or the virgin conception. Now, sometimes God's omnipotence is defined as God's ability to do anything. But that's wrong. God cannot do certain things. God cannot lie. God cannot die. He cannot be tempted. He cannot change. He can't sin. He can't do something absurd. His plans cannot be thwarted. Those examples would not be signs of God's lack of power, but would instead be a sign of his true absolute power. So if God could err, that would be a sign of his powerlessness. God can do all things in accordance with his nature, that is, with his goodness. God's power is bound up with his nature. So God's power actually falls under another attribute, which would be God's sovereignty. Herman Boving says God's sovereignty would refer to God as the creator, owner, possessor, and the Lord of all things. But we should remember that God's sovereign freedom, his power and control will be guided and shaped by his goodness and love. He's always going to act consistent with his nature. And that's true of God's power. And I think concretely we see that expressed with uh, the temptation of Jesus and the devil's temptation of Jesus to turn those stones into bread. Jesus was omnipotent. He had power to do that, but it wasn't in accordance with his nature for him to do that. He wasn't going to use his power for himself or his own glory And in that instance, Jesus is identifying with our humanity and our temptation. And so we always have to think about God's power as acting in accordance with his nature. So in conclusion, uh, we've covered a lot of things today. Uh, Been talking for a long time. We've covered the knowability and the incomprehensibility of God Uh, We can have adequate and accurate knowledge of God, but not exhaustive knowledge, the ocean and the Dixie cup. And when we think of God's attributes, we think of his incommunicable attributes and his communicable attributes. God's incommunicable attributes include aseity, immutability, impassibility, eternality, simplicity, God's communicable attributes include God's knowledge, wisdom, truthfulness, goodness, mercy, patience, love, holiness, justice, jealousy, wrath, power. There are others that um, I didn't speak of today, uh, but that's sufficient for our purposes. 
Next week, we'll cover the doctrine of humanity. And as I said, before we'll cover that, we'll finish up this doctrine of God with some time on the Trinity. But remember the big idea, God and God alone is our highest good. And the application of a doctrine of God is to worship. How is your life drawn to worship the triune God?